Kia ora, and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Global Challenges, Global Agreement. In AC Grayling's view, three of the biggest challenges facing the world today are climate change, the rate of development and high-impact technologies, and the global deficit of social and economic justice. He contends that our problems and our technologies are currently outstripping our moral and political capacity to deal with them. In this lecture, Grayling, whose latest book is For the Good of the World, asks whether it's possible for human beings to agree on a set of values that will enable us to confront the threats facing the planet, or will we simply continue with disagreements and antipathies? He argues that to survive, we must urgently find a positive answer to the question, is global agreement on global challenges possible? This event is supported by Platinum patrons, Dame Rosie and Michael Horton. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Joanne, for such a, a kind introduction. It's wonderful to be back in, in Auckland. I'm uh, delighted to be here, although, of course, uh, a little alarmed to arrive to news about what's happened uh, in Nelson with the flooding and the landslides down there, which are very, very uh, upsetting um, for the people there and, of course, for the, for the country as a whole. And you may be aware also that uh, just over the course of the last week, uh, China has experienced the hottest ever heat wave on record. Days on end of 45 degrees more over the whole of the central China region. And what this is, of course, is uh, an alarm bell ringing ear-splittingly loud about the threat that our planet faces from the climate challenge. And that's one of the things that I'd, I'd like to talk a bit about this evening, because it is one of the great challenges that we face in our time, and which can only be dealt with if the whole international community uh, were to get together and deal with these problems head on. The second challenge that our world faces is one which is much less well known or less well appreciated than the climate challenge, and that is the challenge that is posed by the incredibly rapid uh, development in a whole range of technologies. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain that even though these technological developments have brought many, many advantages with them, they've also brought some interesting questions, which at very least we ought to be considering. And then the final challenge is that this is a world which is very, very divided. It is a world racked by injustice and inequality. And the fact that that is so is one of the reasons why the first two challenges, the climate challenge and the technology challenge, are not being adequately dealt with. And I want to explain why that is the case. So let me begin with, with one that seems most familiar, the, the climate challenge. And of course, you know, most people know about it. Most people know that there is a serious problem facing us. And yet here is the difficulty. It's not just that there are people who deny it. There are still people who deny that uh, anthropogenic heating of the planet is, is what's at issue here. That is, that it is human activity and the use of, of fossil fuels and our techniques of um, production and uh, consumption which are causing this problem. 
But there are also those who do see that we are to blame, but want to distract us from our responsibilities so that they can continue for a little while longer yet to profit from the way that we do things at the moment, and that's a problem. But an even bigger problem, in a way, is the fact that we've been hearing these alarm bells ringing for so long now. So many people, so many scientists and engineers, politicians and others have been talking about the, 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 the climate problem that we tend to glaze over. We don't like constant bad news. We don't like to hear about threats that we and, and future generations are going to face. And so we, we tend to avert our eyes and not think enough about them. And then when we hear that even if every single individual human being on the planet suddenly became absolutely perfect at recycling and, and, and not traveling and walking everywhere and, and being very green, that it still wouldn't help. That the only thing that will really deal properly with the climate challenge is concerted global joint activity, agreement around the globe. And the big problem in the face of that, which is stopping that from happening, is, and it's the same problem that faces the technology matter, and it underlies this problem about injustice in our world, and that is that nation states around the world put themselves first. They put their own people first, uh, or they put their own party or their own voters first, and they are very, very reluctant indeed to fall behind in competitive advantage relative to other countries. So they drag their feet. They don't move fast enough to renewable uh, energy sources. They don't do enough about their uh, producers, their industries, and the pollution of the environment being caused by them because they don't want to hamper their own economies. And this is a, uh, an expression of a law which is far too ironbound and governs our world far too much. It's a very bad law. It's a law that has to be broken. It's such a bad law that I've given it my own name. I've called it Grayling's Law. And it states the following. It's in two parts. The first part is this. Anything that can be done will be done if it brings profit or advantage to whoever can make it happen. So just for one example, and I'll mention more about this when I talk about technology, just think about um, uh, engineering of fetuses. So genetic engineering of fetuses is now a possibility. Indeed, it has actually happened. You may know about the Chinese uh, um, uh, uh, scientist who had engineered uh, the fetuses of a pair of twins, actually in a very well-intentioned way because he was trying to protect them from inheriting the AIDS that their father had, but he was put in prison. He was just released earlier this year, actually, as a result of having done that, because um, in China it's illegal to do this, use this uh, genetic uh, technique uh, on fetuses. But this is something which can be done. Now, even if the whole world outlawed it on the grounds that we were anxious about the uh, Aldous Huxley potential for two different species, subspecies of human beings. You know, those that had been genetically modified in vitro to be six foot five and blonde and blue eyed and IQ of 180 and able to run the 100 meters in five seconds and so on, while the rest of us, of course, are limping behind and doing, you know, picking up the rubbish and so forth. So even if you wanted to outlaw that prospect, nevertheless, 
it will be done because it can be done, even if it's illegal, because there will always be people who see the advantage and who will do it. Either rich people or bad people, or you know if they're different there. But somebody will do, do it, and that is an expression of that law. If it can be done, it will be done. And the obverse of that law, the correlative, you could say, is those things that can be done will not be done if it brings a cost or a disadvantage to anybody who can stop it being done. And the classic example is President Trump. When he became president, he uh, said that he was going to withdraw the United States from the Paris Accords on Climate, the 2012 Paris Accords. You may remember that when he was being elected, he held up a big sign saying, Trump digs coal because the coal industry was sponsoring him and the coal miners were voting for him. And so he wasn't going to um, you know, be a nuisance to them. And in fact, he was going to continue to burn fossil fuels. He was going to withdraw the United States from that international agreement on trying to deal with the climate emergency. So something that can be done, which is an international effort to deal with the climate emergency, it won't be done if it can be stopped by people who have the power to stop it. So that's the other, the correlative of that law, a law fundamentally of self-interest, the self-interest of nations, of governments, of uh, economic interests, of multinational corporations who will stand in the way of doing something about this if it brings them a disadvantage. Or they will do things, even if we don't want them to do them, if it will bring them a profit or an advantage. So that is the law. Grayling's law, which has to be broken if we are to try to do something about our planet, our future, our children, our grandchildren. Now, let's think. I mean, we're all very familiar, of course, with the, uh, think that we're familiar with the problem about climate, but let me just remind you of a couple of things quickly. One is this. Back in 2018, the International uh, Panel on Climate Change, uh, the United Nations Panel on Climate Change, said that we have to try to limit the increase in global temperature uh, to 1.5 degrees centigrade by the middle of this century. That's 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial um, uh, temperature averages of the planet. Well, as we know, uh, the uh, efforts that have been made at the uh, Paris Accords and, and subsequently, because as you know, the, the governments uh, meet on a regular basis to monitor quote-unquote, progress. The most recent of them was last November in Glasgow. It's always surprised me, you know, about they all fly to the city where they're going to meet, and then a lot of hot air is produced, so they damage the environment hugely, and then nothing happens as a result, so it all seems very counterproductive. But uh, th th this, this uh, awareness that 1.5 degrees is not attainable has made people now talk about, well, 2 degrees, if we can keep it below 2 degrees by the mid-century. As I speak to you, we're on target for nearly three degrees. And it is not beyond uh, the bounds of imagination that by the end of the century, it could be four degrees. And when you think about the absolutely catastrophic effect that that will have on the planet as it is now, on human beings, human populations, and on the very, very many species already going extinct or on the verge of going extinct, the dramatic change well, look, let me just tell you a couple of things. It is already the case that every animal and plant species on this planet is having to migrate. If in the southern hemisphere, one kilometer a year southward, 
or in the Northern Hemisphere, one kilometer a year northward, in order to remain in an ecological zone, a climate zone to which it is adapted. If there, there is a, a warming in the region of three or more degrees, the zones between the tropics, Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, will become virtually uninhabitable. Certainly, agriculture will be incredibly difficult. There will be en enormous conflicts over water resources. I mean, I don't know whether you know, I mean, here you are in your beautiful islands uh, in this uh, part of the globe, but this is a very, very dry rock, this planet. We think of the surface being covered by, by water, but actually something less than 1% of the mass of this planet is water. I, I was told by um, a, a water expert, a professor of hydrology at a Dutch university, that my country, the UK, he asked, in fact, he asked me the question, he said, how much, what percentage of the fresh water consumed in the United Kingdom is imported? Well, I mean, I thought that was a very surprising question. I mean, was it bottles of water that were being imported? I asked my students this question, and one of them said, well, 100%, it comes in the clouds. Actually, that's not correct. It turns out that it's more than 70% of the fresh water consumed in the United Kingdom is imported in the form of fresh fruit and vegetables grown in countries with a water shortage, hot countries, and flown into the United Kingdom so that they're fresh in the supermarket. I mean, when you put all that together, it sounds like complete insanity. And yet, we do it. And the prospect of uh, conflicts between nations, between people internally in, in countries also over water supplies, is a, a very, very well one because of the difficulty, the stress that the planet is, is under. So you can see, even from the evidence of the increasing frequency and severity of extreme weather events, when I arrived on, on Monday uh, at Auckland Airport, it was, to, it was in an absolute deluge of rain. You may remember that uh, rain? And my, the, the person who came to collect me said, I've never, never seen this before. This is unprecedented. It's just new in my experience. And that has been something all around the globe. Uh, back in the UK, we've had uh, tremendous heat waves all summer. We've got a drought now. We've got, we've got limitations on water usage. Uh, you know, it, it's giving rise to all these uh, jokes like uh, about uh, uh, Barcelona in Spain. You know, they say, shower with a friend. Well, you can't save water in Barcelona. You know, so, well, that kind of thing. But at least, you know, um, uh, if you're making jokes about these things, it shows that there is some awareness about the problem. So this is a problem. We are aware of it, but we don't dig deeply enough into it. And I want to mention just two things. One is the rise in sea levels, because with rising temperatures, the water expands, and also, of course, the north and south uh, uh, poles melt, the Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic uh, dropping vast quantities of, of uh, water into the oceans, and so sea levels rise, and we know that there are a lot of island communities which are under threat, indeed, um, both in your country and mine, uh, littoral regions are under threat of, of rising sea levels. But much worse than that is that there are many, many parts of the world, the whole of Florida, for example, large tracts of Bangladesh, many other countries, where Tens of millions, indeed in total hundreds of millions of people, are in danger of being flooded out by rising sea levels. Not just by the water, but by the fact that 
uh, high, very high tides and, and tsunamis will salinate the soil so you can't produce, you, know, you can't plant uh, on it, or will pollute the fresh water supply so you can't drink it. Uh, even if the sea doesn't stay, it will leave behind a lot of damage of that kind, affecting, as I say, hundreds of millions of people. Now imagine, we've witnessed in Europe in these last few years large numbers of refugees fleeing the conflict in the Middle East. We've seen something like three million people being displaced from Ukraine because of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. But those movements of refugees, of people seeking asylum, are very, very small beer in comparison to the hundreds of millions of people who might be flooded out of, of uh, coastal regions, going into parts of uh, uh, other parts, drier parts of the world, already themselves stressed and finding it difficult to cope with the, the fact that uh, agriculture is more difficult, fresh water supplies are harder to come by, extreme weather events are very disruptive with fires and floods, droughts uh, and the rest. You can imagine the turmoil in our world that would result from a rise in the sea levels. And that rise is happening. It's already the case that the seas are lifting because of the global warming. So that is one very, very general thing. But dig even more deeply and consider at the granular level of the effect on, on people. Most of the damage done by uh, um, climate change will be in what's called the poor south, but actually meaning uh, Africa and South Asia, parts of the world which are, are less economically developed and have uh, uh, less in the way of uh, infrastructure and resource. Now, in those countries, think of the position of women. In those countries, in traditional societies, very few women learn to swim. Most of them wear clothing, which if they get caught in a flood, will drown them. Almost all of them are responsible for children and elderly people and for care of the, of the ill. They have to find food and water for them. And in these situations, all those tasks of getting fresh water, of getting food, of looking after people who are frightened and, and, and confused, becomes vastly more difficult. Even the fact that, that in um, cases of drought or, or of, of uh, um, pollution of local resources, women and girls have to walk further to get water makes them more exposed to assault and harassment. So in all sorts of ways, even at the very granular level, the impact on human lives is terrible. And this is happening because it's no longer a question of stopping climate change. That ship has sailed. The task now is to mitigate and to adapt is to face up to the fact that we are going to be dealing with these problems and we have to have resources to hand, we have to have strategies to hand, even as we try to capture carbon or to switch from uh, fossil fuel use to renewable energy use. We cannot, it would be quite wrong to think of trying to limit production and consumption when we've had such a tremendous achievement in, an, in a quite different respect over the last 30 or 50 years, which is to bring so many people globally out of poverty about 500 million people in dire poverty in our world today, but 30 years ago it was 1 billion 500 million, and so there has been a big change in that respect. But when you bring people out of poverty, they consume more and they produce more. And so to try to limit consumption and production is the wrong strategy. The right strategy is to make production and consumption sustainable. In other words, use renewable energy sources for production, and 
make us ready to adapt to consume in ways that are genuinely sustainable. For example, there are uh, 10 areas, uh, areas uh, equal to 10 times the size of the county of Cornwall in England, are cut down in the Amazon rainforest every year to run cattle for beef. I mean, apart from, I mean, there, there are so many things wrong with that that one can't even begin. And if we had breakfast organized for tomorrow morning, we could discuss some of them. But th th this, is, this is a tragedy for, for the Amazon, for, for our world. And the alternative to it is not to source our protein from beef, but to source it from mealworms. Now, mealworms are a delicacy in some communities in the world, but most of us, I think, would think the idea of eating worms to get our protein intake uh, a little rebarbative at the moment. But here's the point. If we were to switch our uh, protein resourcing to mealworms in a way which is palatable, hygienic, and acceptable, and we get used to it, and we package it and put it in nice tins or whatever that make it a bit better, that is a lot better than being on our hands and knees one day looking for worms in the dust because we will be starving. Now think of it that way and think about the need to change our habits of consumption in acceptable ways now, thinking ahead, planning, doing these things in a way which is more rational and manageable. Well, as I say, you could, one could go on forever and ever talking about the climate. There it is. The great danger is we glaze over. And when we glaze over and avert our eyes and try not to think about it because it's all too difficult and, and too challenging, and we realize that we individually, however hard we try to be green as individuals, that we cannot make the difference. It has to be the world community of governments working together in order to get away from this incredibly damaging business of competing with one another and of being leery about losing out and being at a competitive disadvantage against other economies. So we're not going to be quite as quick to switch our energy production or, or our consumption patterns, because if we do, we might fall behind and that won't be very good. And in fact, the political cycle has got a lot to, to answer for here because a political party has its voters and supporters. It doesn't want to disadvantage them. So it thinks, well, let's kick this ball down the road a little bit. Let the next government deal with it or 10 years time or five years time. Let's always have the targets in the future and let's just carry on business as normal today. And that will not do because it is nearly already too late. If it isn't already too late to deal with the disaster. By the way, the planet, of course, doesn't regard it as a disaster. There's been climate change for different reasons. There have been meteor, huge meteor impacts in the past which have wiped out the dinosaurs and so on. The planet will recover, but we might not. Human beings might not. And many of the things that exist on our planet today, well, almost certainly not already, as I say, mass extinction is happening. So the world as we know it and that we, as we care about it, if we don't do anything, well, it's on the way out. And if we do value what we are, what we have, then we have to become incredibly energetic. Now, one of the things that, that's uh, um, advertised about this book is that I offer some suggestions about how we might deal with these challenges, and I will come to that, so I'm going to tease you, you know, a bit longer. Uh, I'll come to the, uh, uh, what one might hope to be positives in a little while. 
And there is something which is possible here, however improbable it might be, but as I say, talk about that in a bit. So that's the climate thing. Now let me talk about the technology challenge. Well, we have all of us in this room embraced with enthusiasm all the new technologies of communication. I bet you there's not a single person in this room, or perhaps there is, who'd be delighted to discover if it were so, who doesn't own one of these things, a mobile telephone, a smartphone, okay? Now, our email, our WhatsApp, our Twitter, our TikTok, our whatever, our use of these uh, devices, um, have stripped us naked to the view of any public or private agency who wants to know anything about us. We've given up on personal privacy entirely because of these systems. Information about us is harvested constantly by all these different platforms that we make use. If I ask you, how many New Zealand dollars did you pay for your email account or for your WhatsApp access or your Twitter? And you will say none. And I will say, nope, that's not true. You pay every single time you switch on your device with your personal information. It is being harvested massively. It's not just being used for big data purposes, which is looking for you know, patterns and so on. It's also being used to profile you individually so that you can be sent advertising which is relevant to you or political messaging, you know, if that data becomes available to political parties and so on. And so we have become, all of us, conscripts into this great manipulated uh, mass of people who have put into our homes, into our pockets and handbags, uh, the, the eyes and ears of so many other agencies. But we're happy to do this because of the immense usefulness of these devices. How wonderful it is that I can get on my WhatsApp and I can see the face of my friends and family and uh, and so on on the other side of the world at the press of a button. I mean, that's marvelous. The communication is, is, is tremendous. I can get information. You know, admittedly, those of us who were around in the 1990s when the internet um, got going and we all thought, this is marvelous because this is going to be the great Athenian agora worldwide and we're all going to be discussing with one another a great global democracy and there are no gatekeepers on information. We'll all be able to find out everything is happening. And then, of course, it's turned out that the internet, internet is the biggest lavatory wall in history. Everybody scribbling their rubbish on it, their conspiracy theories and lies and false facts and pornography and so on. But, of course, it is still a good resource if one knows how to use it well, if one can evaluate that information, and one's very critical and, and uh, uh, careful. So there again, that can be very useful. So technology in that sense, all these, you know, the, uh, everything to do with computing and AI and, and communications have been a great boon. But it is also raising some, some questions. For example, AI. We know that our lives now are pretty well run by um, uh, special artificial intelligence systems. Um, we've got them on our phone, of course. We've you know, got uh, uh, them running our energy uh, suppliers, use them, our insurance companies um, uh, you know, do uh, uh, adjustments and, and uh, calculation of premiums and so on using AI. It's coming into the justice system now that AI systems might you know, evaluate uh, what people have done, what their sentence should be, and so forth. So AI is pretty well everywhere. If you were to be uh, in need of a brain operation, you might quite like a, an AI-controlled robot, very precise uh, doing that work, rather than a surgeon who'd quarreled with uh, the spouse the night before and had a bit too much to drink and has a shaky hand and so on. So you might think there are all sorts of things that AI would be very good at, and so indeed 
There are. But think of this. One of the things which has been developed and is in use already is brain chip interfacing. So this is implanted chips to help people with Parkinson's disease or uh, epilepsy or with uh, very traumatic memories or with um, you know, mood problems, uh, um, suicidal depression and so on. Uh, and um, just recently it was announced that these uh, interfaces can be used not only to stimulate or, or uh, desensitize uh, structures in the brain which are uh, implicated in these uh, events, but also to uh, stimulate or even to transmit certain of the important um, uh, hormones like dopamine and serotonin and so on. Now, this is wonderful when you think about it. I mean, think of somebody suffering badly from Parkinson's or you know, very terrible epileptic seizures. Th these are wonderful advances. But if you can control traumatic memory, you can control memory. If you can control terribly depressive moods, you can control moods. You can see how, if there were bad actors with access to these sorts of technologies, how they might be put to malign use. Now that might seem, because all these prospects always seem sort of science fiction in a way, but alas, science fiction has a terrible propensity to become a science fact far too soon. But the most important point is that there has been no discussion about this. There has been no public debate about how to manage and to utilize these technologies for the good and to prevent their misuse. And one outstanding example of this is an application of AI to weapons systems. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been invested over the last several decades in what are called LAWS, L-A-W-S, Lethal Autonomous Weapons Systems. L-A-W-S. Now, you may know that the drones that fly over, you know, Afghanistan and the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, Helmand province and so on, and in Iraq and Syria, that these drones are flown, the U.S. Uh, um, Air Force drones, are flown by pilots sitting on the ground in, in Nevada, in Arizona, in the United States. So they have you know, their screens and they fly these uh, unmanned they call aerial vehicles, UAVs, over these regions from thousands of miles away. The great advantage to the home team is no body bags, because if one of those drones gets shot down, nobody gets killed in the drone or in the home team. And the drones themselves are fantastically effective, amazing uh, capacity with their cameras to visualize high detail on the ground, thousands and thousands of feet below them, heavily armed with very precise weapons. Actually, their use mainly limits civilian casualties, although, as you know, there have been tragic events where whole wedding parties have been blown into smithereens uh, by misuse of, of these systems. So those are drones, and they're called human in the loop because a human being is actually operating them. Now, already in existence are weapon systems known as human on the loop, not in the loop, but on the loop. The sea whiz anti-missile defense system used by all the major NATO navies, United States, France, uh, UK, and so forth. This is an anti-missile system which is completely automatic. It sees a missile approaching the ship and it blows it out of the sky. It's very similar in a way to the Israeli Defense Force Iron Dome system, which blows up rockets coming in from Gaza uh, automatically, just detects them by radar, automatically fires. But both those systems, the Sea Whiz and the Iron Dome, have somebody monitoring them 
watching what's happening, just to make sure that it isn't Air New Zealand flight a bit off course, you know, on its way, on holiday off to the islands. Uh, and then they can be overridden by the person who's monitoring the system. So that's a human on the loop. But laws, the lethal autonomous weapon systems, are called human out of the loop. There's no human being involved after they've been programmed and set going. Nobody's monitoring their activity. Under the water, on the land, in the air, these weapon systems are controlled just by AI. Now, you may say there is an advantage here because an AI system is not going to be angry or frightened or confused or filled with hatred for the enemy, will be much more dispassionate, more rational, will evaluate the situation, will do what a weapon system is for, you know, the three Fs, find, fix, and finish the enemy asset and do it much more effectively. But then you have to ask yourself the question, is our AI, our facial recognition AI, you know, very widely used in China and in, in India and a lot of airports around the world, facial recognition, you know, we're being monitored all the time in the airport to see whether we're terrorists. I mean, it seems to me that the stress you're in when you're hunting for your airplane and whatever would make us all terrorists. But anyway, so they use this facial recognition technology that would be on these systems to see whether it's an enemy soldier or a danger not a civilian or somebody who's not a danger, but how good would it be? Will it be able to tell the difference between somebody surrendering and somebody about to throw a hand grenade at it? In the confusion, the dust, the tumult of battle, will these systems really be able to distinguish, be able to discriminate between a combatant and a non-combatant, between a hospital full of children and a, a, a command center? Will it really? Well, who will be accountable if it fails? What is, the, what is the attitude that we're going to take when the dread necessity of war, of conflict, breaks out? What attitude are we going to take about the use of these technologies, given their advantages, but also in light of their disadvantages? What about the wars of the future, wars between machines, uh, operated or not operated, as the case might, might be, by people a very long way away from the scene of the conflict. Well, that's just one example, <laughs> along with the idea of uh, the, the genetic engineering, CRISPR technology, which won a Nobel Prize for the two uh, lady scientists who uh, developed it back in 2012. Um, the, that technology is now available, so gene editing and modification of, of human fetuses, that's a possibility it's happened, as I say. Uh, these uh, uh, technologies of communication which have taken away our privacy, these brain chip interfaces, these laws. There are so many different aspects of technology which have had no discussion. People haven't thought about them. People haven't thought about how we manage and make best use of them because they have many upsides, but how we mitigate or prevent the downsides. And one final example. It is said, and I, I believe this to be true, that over 90% of robots sold in Japan, which is a country leading a, a robot technology, over 90% of the robots sold there are sex robots. Now, if you, uh, in a spirit of, of um, interested research, otherwise dispassionate, of course, were to go on the internet and look up sex robots, you would be amazed to find that Westworld is here already, okay? That, that um, most of the sex robots are very, very 
uh, agreeable looking sort of female form, uh, young sex robot-ish uh, in, in appearance. Uh, they can be programmed to be, you know, all sorts of different things, which is one of the problems, because they can be programmed to be very affectionate and very sexy and, and what have you, but they can also be programmed for rape scenarios and other things which are much less agreeable. So there are qu already questions that arise before you even begin to think about whether uh, sex with robots is a good idea, given the importance to human intimacy and relationships and so on of the place that uh, sexual intimacy should play in human lives. So there, there are lots and lots of questions to raise uh, about it. Um, it. It was thought, by the way, that the idea of male form sex robots would sell. So you've got a hunky looking male form robot, uh, well endowed, high performance. You switch it off, put it back in the cupboard afterwards so you don't have to wash your socks or make him supper. <laughs> Uh, and, and people thought this might be quite a good idea, but of course women are far too smart for that and they're a complete flop. And so m most of the, of the sex robots are, are female form. Then you get people who say, well, what about people who are lonely or disabled or, or people who you know, find it difficult forming a relationship or a new relationship after one has been lost? Uh, and so people can see advantages in these things. But obviously the disadvantages are considerable too, and therefore there needs to be a discussion about these things. Where is that discussion? There's been hardly any thought given to that application of AI technology. So across the whole range of technologies, things are happening, happening very fast. In fact, I say happening as if they're in process. They've happened, they're here. The sex robots are here. The autonomous weapons systems are here already. Genetic engineering is here already. How much discussion have we had? What, what, what conventions, what laws, what agreements are in place about them? None. The whole palette, the whole repertoire of these changes happens so rapidly. Technological advance is so swift that there are things already in play and in place which we don't even know about. We live in the future. It's here already. It landed some time ago. And we're still thinking in a you know, sort of slow human type speed. Uh, about a world which is not actually the world we think we occupy. Now, this is not something that we individuals or any individual nation state can deal with alone. Again, the use of these technologies, especially weapons technologies, uh, communications technologies, the degree to which their um, access to private life uh, is controlled or moderated, these are things that need to be discussed on an international basis. They cannot be discussed on a local, individual basis. And so that brings me to the, the third great issue, the issue of injustice and equality. And fundamentally here, the problem is that the vast majority of people on this planet have no voice or very, very little voice. They have no input into what should be a discussion about the climate or about technology and its uses. All the decisions made on those two fronts, the climate front and the technology front, are made by governments, they're made by politicians, they're made by big corporations, they're made by people who have a huge amount of money that they can use to influence what happens, uh, and they will be using it rationally in their own interests. They will operate Grayling's law, the interest, self-interest law, uh, at full throttle while they can. And that is why these problems seem so intractable, because we, we, the people of the earth, the people of the planet, have so little 
control over what happens, so little voice. And this is a particular problem for those countries which are, in their way, most at most responsible for these changes, for example, the United States of America, and the countries that are most affected by these changes, for example, Bangladesh, let's say. In neither of those countries are the ordinary citizens anywhere near being participants in the discussion about what should happen and about what this world is going to be like for themselves going forward and for their, for their children and grandchildren. And that deficit, it is the democratic deficit, the fact that we don't have a voice, the fact that we don't have an input, that we are, as it were, helpless spectators of an unfolding disaster in both those major respects, that is the problem. So here is the solution. Now, it is not an impossible solution. It is a possible solution. But I regret to say it is a very improbable one because it is just so hard. It's so hard for, for peoples really to take control in rational and mature-minded ways of, uh, of the processes under which they live and which govern them. It's very, very hard for them to do it. One of the reasons for that is, of course, the sheer effort it takes, the, the, the fact that indifference and passivity are, as it were, the reflex for, for people because they feel their individual impotence. impotence. So even in their groups and, and parties, they feel so powerless. And yet, actually, we're not powerless. We, we can see from time to time how it is that people really can rise up and get angry about something and, and make a big change. A really good example, of course, is, the, uh, is, is France, where, where it's sort of national sport to have a revolution every generation or so and to, and to change things. Although, of course, the, the, the problem there is that most uh, revolutions are not inherited by the people who start them. Classic example is what happened in Egypt just uh, 10 years ago. Uh, where all those young people who got together in Tahrir Square in Cairo, they were all educated, they were all sort of, you know, middle-class uh, people who wanted a democracy, who wanted to open up Egypt, and they, in fact, brought Mubarak down. But the revolution was not inherited by them, it was taken over by I extremer uh, forces, uh, and that is altogether far too often the, the fate of revolutions. So one has to try to think of ways of doing this, not by conflict and, and, and a violent revolution, but in ways that are organized and, and mature. And there the difficulty, of course, is Plato's old dif difficulty, which is that if you get you know, a group of people, get 10 people together, there are going to be 15 different opinions and 20 bitter hatreds between the 10 people. Uh, and so it's very hard to get, to get grassroots kind of uh, agreement. But not impossible. It is, in fact, the only salvation for our planet that um, people should become aware, become conscious, and become active. Personally, I have a great deal of admiration for people like Greta Thunberg and uh, Extinction Rebellion. I know they annoy a lot of people, but I think uh, you know, my hat off to them for really feeling the urgency and really wanting to try to do something to wake people up and make them aware of the fact that we are racing towards the edge of a cliff here, uh, and most people, as I say, averting their eyes. Well, they are uh, leading examples of people who are very much woken up and very much wanting to take action to do something. Now, it doesn't have to be that dramatic. I don't expect you all to rush out of this theater now and lie down in the streets of Auckland, stop the traffic. But to think, to discuss, 
to persuade others to communicate their sense of anxiety. And for this to filter through to our institutions, our political parties, and our governments, for there to be a strong upswelling of sentiment in a country through the, this, this person-to-person -person contract, through, I mean, you know, you may think, oh, well, I've written into my MP often enough about things and nothing ever changes. In fact, if enough people do that, it can have an impact. It can. That's the point, that there are at least possibilities here. And not grasping those, poss those uh, um, possibilities is to fail, because there's no option. You can't just sit back, throw your hands up, and say, well, I can't do anything about this personally. And even if I try to get all my friends and family uh, to do the same thing or to get together on this, even that's not going to make a difference. And that is a council of despair. Because if we don't do anything, then nothing will be done other than the inevitable thing, which is things will just get worse. Entropy is as much a social as it is a physical phenomenon, as you know. So the possibility is uh, to try to achieve a genuine democracy of opinion on these matters, to try to make it possible uh, for uh, the, the, the voice of, of people around the world to be heard, the sense of urgency, the sense of anxiety, the sense of willingness to try to, to do something, the sense of desire for, for governments to stop behaving in partisan and, and self-interested ways, but to work with other governments around the world and to try and make a difference. But as I say, it's, it's, you know, it seems improbable, but because it's not impossible, it means that it's worth trying to do. So our world has these different challenges facing it. We are, all of us, the, uh, on the receiving end of the downsides, just as much as we are of some of the upsides, especially in the technological sense. And the key to this issue is, as I say, trying to get effective democracy, trying to think about the way that a, a, a democracy of the world population, and I don't mean world government, I do, I think, mean that each individual country has to think about its own democratic processes and institutions to make sure that they really do work and that these messages really do get turned into concrete action by governments. But uh, we, we can't expect the, the entire world to have, for example, the New Zealand electoral system and, and uh, kind of institutions. But something a heck of a lot better than the dominance of political faction and of uh, big money around the world would be a, an enormous step towards trying to ameliorate and deal with some of the difficulties that we face. Now, you may think, surely the solution to climate is carbon capture, is uh, a, a war-footing uh, change of energy towards renewable uh, energy sources. Uh, we should really look for the technological fixes here. The um, solution on technology is piece by piece, let's look at all the different technologies and let's you know, have campaigns, let's have a very vocal uh, uh, sense of what the downsides might be of them and what we want to do about those. And yes, certainly those things are necessary. But as I say, in the end, the solutions can only be global, can only be international. And to get that going, we need a kind of global democracy. So this means that the real solution to these problems is not so much the direct confrontation of the problems themselves, but something which lies off to one side. 
as it were, in the corner of your eye. To deal with climate, we need proper democracy. That seems to be a kind of unintuitive thing to think, but it reminds me of something. Uh, I, I've, spent, uh, I've been for um, a long time a representative at the Human Rights Council in Geneva of the United Nations for an organization called the International Humanist and Ethical Union. And uh, back in the 1990s, uh, doing some work in Geneva at just the time when a report was published about the effect of elementary education, just enough education to be able to read, write, and do some arithmetic for women and girls in Africa. That elementary education is transformative of their lives. That w women who can read and write and add and subtract um, take control of their lives in ways that is not possible for them uh, unless they have that skill. They cease to be the property of fathers and husbands. They can become owners of property themselves. They have fewer children. Their children tend to have higher educational attainment than themselves. It's Education is absolutely the key in those respects. And I got very, very enthusiastic about this and wanted, um, therefore, to um, start a school uh, somewhere in, in Africa for, for girls. And I was having a conversation with um, no less a person than Ayan Hersey Ali, whose name you may recognize. And she said to me, under no circumstances should you start a school just for girls. It's got to be co-educational, because otherwise the girls would just have a hard time from the boys and men in their communities. She said, if you want girls in Africa to get an education, the absolute key to ensuring that they get an education is that the school should have a lavatory with a door. Why? Because without it, the girls can't manage their personal hygiene. If they can't do that, they can't go to school. And the key is a loo. I mean, who would have thought it? That's off to one side. The solution is not right in front of you. It's not books and a blackboard. It's a loo. And it's that kind of, of you know, off to the side solution that is the kind of trigger, is the thing that cuts the knot, which helps. The solution to our world's problems is to get the voice of the people, and of course the, the voice, the people have to be informed and, and uh, alerted to the problem and equipped with an insight into what the problem is, but to get that voice heard, to get the, the um, expression of that desire, that need, that anxiety, actually registered in concrete results in governments, but not just in national governments, but in the governments of the international community. And that is why, when we think about how we're going to do these things, as you recycle, and you definitely should, as you think about doing carbon offset when you travel, get on the plane to go to Europe or something like that, plant some trees, you know, which are equivalent to your emissions. Uh, all, all, all those things, as you do that, the key thing is to be an activist in getting the voices of the world's people heard. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I, I'm, I think we've got some time for, for questions. Uh, and um, Anne did mention that there are some microphones. I think there are two down at the front and there are two up in the middle. So if you would like to, uh, any questions, comments, or complaints, uh, I'll try to deal with them. Please. 
Yes, hi. Um, I was interested in your ways of combating um, climate change and, you know, you talked about sustainable practices, but you didn't talk about population control. And I know that my generation, a lot of younger people are considering whether or not they should have children at all because it is the single worst thing you can do for the environment. So it's like go vegan or go childless. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not I should have children? <laughs> Well, I definitely think you should, because I, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, educated, thoughtful parents are at a premium in our world, <laughs> uh, and therefore people like you should uh, have children. You know, it's a very difficult question, this one, the, the, the whole question about population, because uh, on the one hand, yes, indeed, you know, there are now double the number of people on the planet uh, that there were on the day that I was born. That's a very frightening thought. Um, and you think about the, the stress on the planet of a, of a population of 10 billion, which is where it's heading, um, but very fast now. But then on the other hand, the population is aging in many places. I mean, in, in the so-called poor south, of course, the vast majority of people are under the age of 25 or, or 30. So that's a, a different story there. But in Europe, Japan, North America, places like that, the population is aging. Those countries are going to find it very, very difficult to manage an elderly, unproductive population uh, with too few people who are producing the economic goods. And so, uh, and, and so it is a worry. China, for example, which had its one-child policy for a long time, uh, and, that was, and that caused a huge amount of, of social difficulty because of the tradition, the family tradition in China, are now encouraging people to have more than one child because of the aging population difficulty that they face. And so th there's, a, there's a kind of push-me-pull-me problem here uh, about population and, and what to do about it. Technological changes, changes in genetic medicine, are very probably going to exacerbate this because it's already the case that um, you know, if you have babies over the age of 30, you're regarded as an elderly prima gravida, you know, geriatric mother and so on. Uh, well, um, the, these genetic changes will probably mean that, you know, women in their 80s and 90s, where uh, uh, longevity will increase, um, could, could perhaps have children again, so they may, uh, you know how it is with women who want grandchildren, but they think, well, to hell with it, I'll just have my own, you know. And, uh, <laughs> And that will, that, that will create stresses as well, and, and in all sorts of kind of unpredictable ways. I mean, one predictable way is that there may have to be social policy on rationing children. You know, this goes, takes us back to Plato's Republic, where the state decided who should have children. They would say, you have, they would say, not only should you, not, not only can you, but should you, <laughs> you should have children, and somebody else should not. You know, eugenics will come back into the picture. And so there are all sorts of problems that arise in connection with it. So it's a very, very good, good question, and I don't have the answer. Thank you, though. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, you mentioned uh, nation states a number of times in the, in the talk, and um, you mentioned them being problematic in that they're generally sort of self-interested and competitive. Um, do you think that there could ever be a world where people primarily think of themselves more as citizens of the world than as first and foremost sort of citizens of the UK or New Zealand or China or India or the USA? 
Um, and if you do think it's possible that there could be a world like that, um, do you think that would be a good thing? I presume so. And if so, uh, if, if you do think it uh, would be a positive thing, how, what could we do now to get people to move faster in that direction? Good, yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Also, uh, a richly complex question in a way, because um, you, you could imagine uh, the sort of response that Bertrand Russell got back at the beginning of the 20th century when he argued and campaigned for world government. He wanted a single government of the world so that there wouldn't be competition and conflict between different nation states, uh, and, and that's a very good thought. And then the problem with that is, well, what's the appeal from the world government? Because if the world government turned out to be a sort of Boris Johnson type government, then we'd all be in big trouble, uh, and uh, there wouldn't be any way of getting out from under. So there, there is that kind of pushback on it. But I think that, that you know, most rational, mature-minded thinking about how we're to organize our world is, is pushing us in the direction of seeing that international cooperation and agreement, of which, for me, the paradigm is the European Union. The European Union exists to get cooperation going between a number of different uh, nation states where they would submerge some of their individual sovereign sovereignty for the good of the, uh, of the community of nations. Um, dismantle borders, have intimate trading relations. This goes back, you know, Tom Paine at the end of the 18th century said, if you want to stop wars between nations, make those nations so dependent on one another in trade that they simply cannot go to war. The same point was made by Cobden and Bright, the great free traders of the 19th century, of the Victorian era. Again, you know, intimate relations between states, even if they are still nation states, but really joining together, working together, cooperating progressively is the way to go. And the EU, uh, in all sorts of ways, has set an example. The soft power example is, is one thing, although, of course, the Putin aggression in, in Ukraine has made the EU think it now needs an army. But uh, they, they have raised standards all around the world. If you want to trade with the EU, you have to meet their quality standards for food and, and industrial products and so on, which is a very good effect on the world. And all around the world, ASEAN, uh, Mercor in South America, uh, in Africa, the uh, attempt to make a, a sort of African EU. This, the idea of, of unity and working together and of larger units, supranational units, no longer national governments, but, but states working together. More local autonomy, because you know, democracy really should be down at the grassroots level. So the idea of, of having a, a, a band of, of nations working together and bringing down the local, uh, to the local area the democracy that really matters to the people at the local area, that does seem to be a very, very promising way to go. And it was part of the great vision of the founders of the EU. This is why, by the way, but don't get me started, okay? Uh, I'm completely neutral about Brexit. I think it is the worst idea that humanity has ever come up with. I'm uh, very angry about it. And, and it shouldn't have happened because uh, I, I feel that if there's an opportunity for uh, a nation to be part of this bigger, more progressive project, uh, a project of peace, of cooperation, of unity, of working together, of pooling resources, of dealing with problems together, what, what, what could possibly be bad about that idea, as it seems to me? So that is my, my re response to that question. Yes, much, much, much more global uh, uh, communi communication and uh, cooperation, but 
mindful of the, the problem that we, we do need to be very careful about uh, not having any appeal away from a sort of supranational organization. Yes. I don't think you need to put your, oh, I see you're putting your mask on to keep the microphone safe. Hello. For the next oh, user. Yeah. No, to keep my, myself safe. Yeah, I understand that. You know, for the, for the microphone itself might be infected. No, no, I've got that. bugs from microphones before. I'm a singer. I'm a professional singer. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, very wise in that case. Yeah. 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 So I just got Perhaps you could sing your question. Uh, I'd love to. But um, so I've got a, just a quick uh, question to your discussion about climate change and the percentages uh, in terms of tipping point, because uh, I thought that the 1.5 was being quoted around 2009 COP. Um, uh, conferences mm -hmm. um, and in my mind what you've just delivered means that it 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 spins it into complete disarray because I've, I've I, I'm now kind of looking at that as being the tipping point but you're saying we're kind of there mm. um, yeah what do you think it matters or not that it's 2018 that's the 1.5 <laughs> uh, or you know well, I have to say, I mean, it's a very, very good question. Again, there are two little implications of your question. The tipping point one is a very, very interesting one. But I have to say, it was a surprise to me to find that the um, ICPP report, um, IPCC report, quoted 1.5 as late as 2018, when it already began to look very implausible. Because you're quite right, that was the figure that was being bandied about much earlier. Now, I, I used to um, host a program on the BBC World Service called Exchanges at the Frontier, which is talking to people in science about what impact their science would have on the world. And I had the chairman of the ICPP on that program talking about climate change. And this was back in about 2005. And he was there talking about the 1.5 uh, desideratum. So this has moved out. You know, that there are still attempts being made to be as... To, to restrain uh, what's happening as much as possible. I think in some cases, climate scientists and uh, activists are talking to governments about the 1.5 or the 2 uh, degree level now, just being bandied about, uh, in the hope that they will aim for that or aim for something less than that. Because if you said to them, we're heading for 3, then they say, well, if we can stop at 2.7, then that would be good. And we don't want that. We don't want to give them that margin because the, the carbon budget which is left to us now is now so little. And this is where your use of the expression tipping point becomes very, very relevant, which is this. All the science about what will happen to our planet as it warms is uh, the result of extrapolation and speculation. And what is very, very alarming to a lot of climate scientists is that it's unpredictable what would happen at a tipping point, a trigger point, when the climate has reached a certain level, and there might be a very dramatic cascade of effects and an even more rapid warming as a result of them following. So at the moment, you know, everybody's extending graphs and saying this would happen and that would happen, this is what the sea level rise would be by uh, you know, the end of the century and so on. But it could be a lot worse because of these uh, trigger events and the cascade effects that they have afterwards. So things are serious. I say in the book, but, uh, you know, it may already be true that the very saddest words ever spoken 
it's already too late, might be true. And it, that could be true of the climate situation, the technology situation. But the fact that it might be true is, is not a reason for doing nothing about it. Indeed, your point is exactly the point that, well, these numbers are bandied about. We don't really have as clear a picture of the possible consequences and how bad they might really be as we would like to have. Therefore, we cannot relax our, uh, our grasp on this. We've got to do what we can. Hi, thank you very much for everything so far. Um, I know that you've been uh, concerned about the capacity of the United Nations to be the vehicle for collective decision-making. Um, presumably um, it has a quasi-democratic uh, underpinning because it's nation, elected nation-states being represented, but of course the veto gets in the way. I wondered if you compare that um, with the World Economic Forum, which seems to be, it's not a, a elected body, but it uh, seems to bring a lot of uh, bright minds and creative thinking to these big questions. Uh, on the other hand, it gets a lot of bad press in the misinformation machine. <laughs> um, so I'd be interested to know whether you think that is a vehicle. Well, personally, I'm a, a big admirer of the United Nations and its potential uh, and very saddened by the fact that, of course, it, it is undermined by, um, well, I mean, look at the current situation. Russia has a seat on the Security Council, so, of course, it vetoes anything about the Ukraine invasion and so on. Uh, and then the United States, for so many years, has refused to pay its dues to the United Nations. Um, and, and nation states, especially at times of economic difficulty, are very reluctant to provide troops for peacekeeping missions and so on. So what, what, what is a, a, a very great idea, because the United Nations is the, is the child of the awful, horrendous catastrophe and amount of human suffering in the Second World War, and the idea of trying to bring all the nations of the world together to be able to talk uh, things through and, and work things out in a... In a in a sensible way, that idea is, in my opinion, a very beautiful idea. And there is the instrument for it, with all these different organizations, many of which, by the way, are very good. The United Nations Development Agency and the, uh, you know, the educational and cultural agencies, they do tremendously good work. But as a, um, a kind of simulacrum of a world government to try to get unity, try to get uh, conflict resolution, it has had a very, very, very patchy and largely unsuccessful history because it is undermined by those players who will not do things if they can stop them because they bring them a cost. Okay, so it's just an expression of that law. So far as the World Economic Forum is concerned, well, I was myself a fellow of the World Economic Forum for five years back at the beginning of the century. Um, you know how it is, uh, the worst corporations behave, the more they love to have philosophers come and give lectures on business ethics. And so it's a bit similar, the WEF would like to have, uh, you know, quote-unquote thinkers and other people to come and, and give talks and sessions and so on the WEF. So I had a wonderful time, you know, in Davos, in the Magic Mountain, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, in the very, um, now a hotel, but what was where Hans Kastorp and the others were all talking philosophically. So that, that was a very good experience. And I have to say there were some really wonderful 
um, things that the WF did. I was on a committee which put uh, um, people, social entrepreneurs and charities in contact with very, very wealthy individuals, a committee that was chaired by uh, uh, Al Gore, who in person is an extremely impressive uh, individual, um, an absolute master at a, at a brief. And um, we did some wonderful things. I remember once uh, putting in touch a, a wealthy individual and somebody who ran a very, very small charity that provided dust filters for 50cc motorbikes used for the delivery of medicines into rural areas in Africa and driven by women because w women would be the ones who were the sort of chief medical uh, helpers. And uh, they used to walk for days to take, you know, um, medications out to outlying villages. And these little motorbikes transformed their work. But because of the dust in Africa, they needed to have filters replaced pretty well every week. So they had to have the filters and they had to be trained to use them. So here's a really sexy charity for you, dust filters. So how are you going to raise money for that? And uh, I, we explained this to this uh, individual who wanted to, to be a donor. And he took his checkbook out, there were still checkbooks in those days, and he wrote a seven-figure sum which absolutely demolished the individual who was in receipt of it, because you can imagine that was their budget for the next 10 years, so it was wonderful for them. So the WEF can, in that kind of way, can have some kind of effect. But, but the truth of the matter about WEF is that even though very senior politicians go and meet and talk, and heads of governments and so on, it's really a, a place where uh, very, very senior management in global corporations talk about what's of interest to the global economy and to business and to profit margins and the bottom line and uh, resources and supplies and, and what have you. And it's not uh, as focused as it might be, uh, although sometimes you do get very interesting sessions on things like climate. Uh, but, you know, the, the, there are swings and roundabouts there. And I don't think of it as a substitute for the UN because the UN has, as its remit, the attempt to get international agreement, peace, and progress, a bit like the EU. Uh, hello there. I'm wondering what is your opinion on the potential of digital direct democracy uh, in order to resolve some of the larger issues that democracies face when it comes to decision-making in the face of climate change? Yeah. Well, direct democracy has its uh, um, uh, uses for certain kinds of issues and in certain sorts of contexts. As a, a means of running a country, for example, it may be, there may be advantages in the representative system rather than direct democracy. So you can imagine the purest form of direct democracy would be that uh, some propositions come up on your television screen each morning and you vote on them you know, by pressing your button. And you can imagine what the result might be. For example, in the UK, uh, hanging would be back, you know, in an instant. Uh, and you, you might wonder whether that really is something that, that might need a bit more thought and some input from, you know, moral philosophers. So, uh, so you, you could see that in that, that kind of case, you know, government by referendum just simply doesn't work. In a representative democracy, you send people to the national uh, place of party the parliament, to get the facts, listen to discussion, argument, debate, 
come to joint decisions and try to implement them in the interests of everybody. That's the putative ideal. Of course, it tends to be really much more party political than that. But that's the ideal, and not just a matter of what, by chance, people happen to be feeling on the day of a referendum, which would be, in effect, what a direct democracy form of government would be. But, as I say, there are times, cases, and topics on which direct democracy would be uh, a good thing. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we, we have to stop. I, I'm not entirely sure how far I've overrun, but I'm sure I have. And I thank you very much indeed for your attention. Thank you so much. Thank you. Danakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.